I'd like to start with a quick correction before we get rolling today. In my last episode on President Eisenhower, I said the Iranian coup was orchestrated by Theodore Roosevelt's son, Kermit. That was incorrect. I had the wrong Kermit. The coup was orchestrated by Roosevelt's grandson, Kermit Jr. Roosevelt's son, Kermit Sr., had already died in Alaska in 1943. Apologies. On with the show. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 34A, an interview on Ike and the end of McCarthyism with Larry Tai. I'm excited to welcome Larry Tai to the show today. Larry is a New York Times bestselling author of numerous books, including, most recently, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And it is a long shadow, a shadow many sitting and future presidents got tangled in. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Great to be with you. Let's start with a question of vocabulary. What is demagoguery and why does it work? So I think demagoguery is a fancy word for a simpler word, which is bully. And it is somebody who uses all the arts of rhetoric and of political manipulation to get people to do something that that bully or demagogue wants them to do, generally something self-serving, like electing them to office. <laughs> right. Always the goal. Always the goal. Joe McCarthy, he first entered the Senate in 1946. How did he get there? What, was he already doing these demagoguery tactics? Um, and also, what was his background? What did he run on? He was a farmer. He was the best of um, what Wisconsin uh, offered in terms of people who grew up with farm life and farm values of hard work. But he learned over time that dirty tricks worked even better than hard work. Mm. And he used dirty tricks in being elected to everything from a local county judge to ultimately and very quickly catapulting to a career in the U.S. Senate, along the way, bringing down one of the icons of the of Wisconsin politics named La Follette, a, a member of yeah. the great La Follette dynasty, which for people, for your listeners who don't know what that is, that's a little bit like being a Taft in Ohio or right. a Kennedy in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you give me an example of one of these early dirty tricks? Like... A good anecdote of something that, that paints what he was doing. So it was taking his opponent, the longtime senator from Wisconsin, uh, Bob LaFollette, and instead of seeing him as somebody who had given long time and great service, service to the point where it had made him sick at different points um, to his state, he painted him as an out-of-touch mm. uh, guy who had been won over by the Washington establishment, exactly the kinds of things making him seem to be an elitist that demagogues and populists mm. use so effectively that glosses over issues of policy and that goes to um, exaggeration and demagoguery. Got it. Now, once McCarthy got into the Senate, my understanding is he was a pretty ho-hum, forgettable senator his first few years until in 1950, he gave a Lincoln Day speech that put him on the map. Can you tell me about what did he say, who did he say it to, and what was the reaction to this, this Lincoln Day speech? Sure. So 
to understand what a Lincoln Day speech means in the Republican universe in America. Um, This is Lincoln, Abe Lincoln was the patron saint of the Republican Party. (laughs) And on um, on the anniversary of Abe Lincoln's birth, Republicans of prominence were invited to deliver speeches across America. It was a great rallying cry for the Republican faithful to get together and boost their spirits and boost their coffers. And if you were a big deal U.S. Senator, you got invited to places like Los Angeles or Washington, Mm -hmm, New York mm -hmm. or Boston. When you were Joe McCarthy, a backbencher who looked destined to become a one-term senator, you got invited to what his staff and he called Wheeling West by God, Virginia. And (laughs) it was out in the boonies. It was a place for second or third tier candidates. And Joe McCarthy showed up that evening in Wheeling, West Virginia, with two speeches in his briefcase. Hmm. One was a speech on national housing policy. Hmm. And had he reached into his briefcase that night and delivered that speech, we would not 75 years later be talking about Joe McCarthy. He would have been what he looked destined to be, that make um, no waves and nobody recognize one term senator. Instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase. He pulled out a speech. He held it up in the air and he said, I have in my hand a list of dozens of communists in our government and especially in the U.S. State Department. He was essentially saying that behind every pillar in the State Department, if not the White House, there was a communist spy and he was damn well going to expose them and going to root out this evil in our government. Now, he might have had many things in his hand that night. We don't actually have a copy of that speech. It might have been his wife's grocery list. It might have been a recycled list of spies turned up by the House Un-American Activities Committee. What we know, because he would never actually produce it, was that it was not a real list of communists. Mm -hmm. And most of the names that he did give us were either recycled names of Mm. people who had long ago been exposed or people that he could never prove were actual communists. And certainly they were never spies. This is an explosive charge. What's the reaction? So the reaction was just what Joe McCarthy hoped. Within a day or two, he was page one news in every newspaper, not just across America, but across the world. And it was Joe McCarthy making these extraordinary charges that at a time in the middle of the Red Scare, when the notion of communists infiltrating our government was a very scary thought, Joe McCarthy was precisely where he wanted to be. And his stories made page one Mm -hmm. from that moment over the next several years. And the responses by those he was charging generally made the paper a day later and deep inside next to the corset ads. So (laughs) McCarthy understood that the press loves a charge and Mm -hmm. a rebuttal to that charge is a whole lot less dramatic and less worthy of coverage. And so Joe McCarthy mm. precisely how to play the American press and it worked. And he quickly went from being a backbench senator to being the most fiery presence in the entire U.S. Congress. And I, you mentioned that it was a red scare at the time. I, I'd love you to elaborate on that because I know there, there have been previous red scares in the country, you know, like uh, around 1920 after World War I, big red scare then. 
What was the current level of Soviet paranoia when McCarthy gave that speech? You know, was it on the rise? Was it already the crescendo? Was he really feeling the vibe of the moment? You know, kind of where was it and how did he influence it? So the Red Scare was at its fiery, most red hot. And what that meant was um, we had seen that it wasn't just America anymore that had an atomic bomb. It Mm. was Russia. It wasn't just Russian kids who were afraid that America might attack them or drop a bomb someday on them. It was American kids who were trained in the famous duck and cover, (laughs) which was that if there was a bomb, the way we were going to um, the deal with that threat was we would just simply duck under our desks and cover ourselves up. And that was our response to a Red Scare. It was something that basically infiltrated every level of American consciousness from little kids to their parents, from the government to the private sector. And it was in part in reaction to some scary things that were going on in the world, everywhere from Korea to Moscow, but it was also something that bullies and demagogues understood that they could exploit. It may have been that the House Un-American Activities Committee, while it did a lot of bad things several years before McCarthy, it may have been that they had come up with true 24-carat communists and real spies. By the time Joe McCarthy came along, the easy pickings had Mm. already been gone through Mm -hmm. by members of various committees in Washington. And what Joe McCarthy did was partly invent, partly recycle in a way that today we understand that he did a disservice, not just to America and to the liberals he was attacking, but to the anti-communist cause. Mm. Because if you're out there claiming there were communists there who weren't real communists, in the end, the public saw through that, and it ended up making charges of the, the communist spies something that people didn't want to believe, even when they were real. Did McCarthy ever reveal any actual communists? You know, you've hinted that he's usually pulling up old names or or bullcrap. What was his hit rate? You know, is he like 10%? He'll name a guy and attack at 1%? Zero? So let me suggest that if you had a hit rate like him and you were <laughs> trying out to be a police person or to be in the military, um, that you would have seen you would be seen as having missed your target so often that nobody would ever trust you. I went through every one of the people that he had targeted, Mm. and there were almost none that were real spies, and those that were were so low-level that Mm. the threat that they posed was meaningless. So it was a pathetic hit rate and one that ended up doing him in. And how many people, you said you went through all of them. Are we talking dozens? Are we talking hundreds of people? And We're talking over time. Dozens, dozens in that first speech in Wheeling, by the end, hundreds. And the consequences of what he did were that there were lives that you could point to and uncontestably say that he ruined lives. There were people who committed suicide wow. as a clearly direct result of Joe McCarthy having traumatized and embarrassed them 
in front of the public. Um, what he did was, so by the time I came along and was writing this book, I had access to a couple things that people hadn't had access to before. One was all the closed door hearings that McCarthy mm. held and two thirds of his public hearings were behind closed doors. Mm. And we finally, after 50 years, the transcripts of those hearings were made public and we could see that McCarthy berated and um, traumatized witnesses behind closed doors, but most of them never showed up in public hearings because the ones who fought back effectively, as many did, he didn't want to have to go up against them in a hearing. He only picked the most vulnerable. We saw that behind closed doors, in the morning, McCarthy would be relatively rational. But after his lubricated several <laughs> right. martini lunch, yeah. in the afternoon, he became less and less reasonable and less and less rational. And you didn't want to be called before Joe McCarthy after lunch. Yikes. We saw that the he was exploiting um, the idea of not having to show anybody, including the press, what was going on in his hearing room uh, in a way that it was the classic caricature of the berating wild man congressman or senator in this case going after vulnerable witnesses. And I also had access to all of McCarthy's personal and professional papers. For mm. 70 years, um, his daughter, they, he and his mm. wife adopted an infant child. And after the two of them died, it was left up to his daughter whether all of his papers would be made public. And for 70 years, she had been either, she had been doing one of two things. She had not been responding to all the biographers who asked her, would you make those papers public? Or mm -hmm. she said no. For some reason, and as you will find out by the end of the interview, it certainly wasn't because I'm charming. <laughs> for some reason, after 70 years of saying no, she said yes to me. And she said yes in a strange way and in a way that publishers and authors dream about, which is she said, I will give you exclusive access. And the day you stop looking at those files, they will go back under lock, lock and key. So I had access to all the papers. And if I couldn't write a book saying something new, then shame on me. Yeah. But what those papers showed was two things. They showed in some cases that the evil wild man, Joe McCarthy, actually was telling the truth in ways that we never dreamed he was. And I'll give you one concrete yeah, yeah, example. Yeah, Sure. So he had claimed to have been a war hero. He was a Marine Corps, okay. um, the uh, Marine Corps serviceman in the South Pacific. And he had claimed to be somebody who went up in warplanes and was a tail gunner, that he right. was in the most, the scariest and most vulnerable position in a plane. And it became a joke when he ran for public office in Wisconsin reporters called him tail gunner joe right tail that gunner was joe, not yeah. said that was not said in a way that was intended to be a complimentary way well it turns out that while his official assignment in the south pacific was as a land-based intelligence agent he volunteered for missions mm. he had in his personal papers the testimony of his fellow marine corps um 
men in the South Pacific saying that he went up with them. He, in fact, was a tail gunner very often. He was shot at. He risked his life. And so Joe McCarthy, the war hero Mm -hmm. and the decorated Marine, was, in fact, legitimate. Hmm. Just about everything else that McCarthy claimed about (laughs) his public life was not legitimate. And again, his papers helped reveal. They revealed the leaks by FBI people and others to McCarthy, the way he embellished those leaked documents and the way he basically created out of thin air a record that just didn't stand up. We also, there was one last set of papers that I got, and this was in a way the least likely. I hadn't expected and was delighted to get the transcripts of the closed door hearings. I hadn't expected even more and was delighted to get all the papers that McCarthy's daughter made available. And the thing I really hadn't expected was when I asked the Marine Corps, and specifically Bethesda Naval Hospital, which treated Marines and Navy men, when I asked them for his medical records, the government has the authority after a certain number of years to make public somebody's medical records if they decide it is in the public interest. But it's generally controversial enough to do that, that it's a whole lot easier to say no than to say yes. Yeah, yeah. And one day, my wife and I were out for an early morning walk from our home on Cape Cod, and we saw an enormous brown box that looked like it had been left off by UPS or FedEx at the top of our driveway. (laughs) And we decided we were going to continue our walk with the dog and those papers would be there when we got back. And when we got back and I opened them up, it turned out that those were thousands of pages of McCarthy's medical records. And I didn't trust my own read of them. I had a recently the recently retired dean of the Harvard Medical School mm. and the recently retired editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine yeah. and another smart doctor. These three doctors <laughs> sat down with me and read all the records. And what the records clearly showed was that Joe McCarthy had been drinking to excess for much of his time as a senator, that in the last years he was drinking the equivalent of a fifth of whiskey a day, Woo. and that Joe McCarthy, rather than dying, of the um, hepatitis that the public was told was his cause of death. He, in fact, died of alcohol poisoning. And that was a sad commentary, both on his life as a senator and on how the effect that his humiliation by being censored by the Senate had on him in his later years. And he was a very sad drunk, and that's what he died of. I'd love to go to a higher level now. We've really focused on McCarthy. When McCarthy first comes out with these claims, this is on President Harry Truman's watch. Um, McCarthy was a Republican. Truman was a Democrat. It makes sense there'd be some antagonism there. What was Truman's reaction to McCarthy? And did he do anything to try to confront him or stop what McCarthy was doing? Yes. So Truman, who was a an ardent anti-communist in his own own right and who um, implemented the strictest loyalty codes that we had ever seen where everybody in the government had to was guilty of disloyalty in a way until they proved their loyalty Um, truman was really taken aback uh, when Joe McCarthy went after him and basically suggested that some of Truman's closest advisors, not to mention much of his State Department, Mm -hmm. was infested 
with communist spies and traitors. And Truman understood how dangerous that was to his reputation. And Truman went after McCarthy, not to great success. Right. Truman attacked him. McCarthy loved getting Truman down in the trenches. First of all, mm. for a U.S. senator to have a president attacking him uh, suddenly elevated the senator to the yeah. level of the president. And it looked like it was a fight among equals. Ah. And there was nobody you don't want to take on. Much as Truman was known for being a tough guy from Missouri yeah. and who knew how to fight dirty or fight in the trenches, you don't want to take on a legendary bully like Joe McCarthy because you will get sullied by them. And that's what happened to Truman. And that was a lesson, I assume, where we'll go with this. Is that was the lesson that <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower learned well in understanding how he was going to respond to bully Joe McCarthy. You know exactly where we're going. After two years of McCarthyism with Truman in the White House, a fellow Republican, Dwight Eisenhower, won the presidency. Uh, first off, when Ike entered the White House, what was his initial relationship with McCarthy like? And, and also, had McCarthy been a factor in the presidential campaign that he just ran and won? So he had been a real factor in the presidential campaign. Uh, McCarthy took on one of the people who was closest um, as a friend and in his heart and in everything that Dwight Eisenhower, the retired general who helped take the Allies to victory in World War II, one of the police people Eisenhower most cherished was a war hero named General George Marshall. And McCarthy had gone after Marshall, essentially uh, he attacking him as being a traitor. He, he delivered an incredibly long speech that only his closest aides and his wife actually stood up to listen to all of in the Senate. Um, the speech became a book, and it essentially said that this decorated war hero was not the hero that we thought, that he was a patsy to the communists. And that was, aside from being entirely untrue, it was devastating to not just Marshall, but to his yeah. pal, Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower had, on his campaign train, he had a speech ready to deliver, defending Marshall and attacking, uh, attacking McCarthy. Only Eisenhower's political aide said, you don't want to do that. Mm. And if it becomes a close convention where we need the votes mm. from the state of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. Joe McCarthy, if you attack him, will deny us those critical votes. So Eisenhower listened to his political advisors rather than to his heart. He didn't deliver that speech. And I think for the rest of his life, Eisenhower understood that this was a profile in the lack of courage yeah. of a politician. This was not Eisenhower the general. This yeah. was Eisenhower the politician. It turned out, as we all know now, that Eisenhower didn't need the votes of any one state. Right. He won not just the nomination, but the White House in a landslide. And when he went to... 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, he went there with an animus to McCarthy. And mm. yet he also went there as a strategic general thinking that the best way to defeat McCarthy was not to take him on head on, but was to let McCarthy do himself in. He thought that it should be his fellow senators who first took him on, not the president. And he knew that a bully like McCarthy 
would eventually go a step too far. And Eisenhower was right. And McCarthy went a step too far, ironically, by taking on an institution yeah, that yeah. was closest to Eisenhower. It was the U.S. military. And he went after the armed services, saying that they were traitors in the military, specifically at a base, base at a place called Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. But McCarthy did go a step too far because there was no institution in America closer to the soul of the American people than the military. Everybody who had had somebody in their family who was serving or who had died in service. And when you went and attacked the military, you were going a step too far. And that was a very smart strategic decision by Eisenhower in these famous Army McCarthy hearings held by his fellow senators, McCarthy embarrassed himself. When he got on television, he looked like the madman and the bully that he in fact was and that people who had seen those closed door hearings knew. There was only one problem with Eisenhower's strategy, that by letting McCarthy do himself in, he also let McCarthy have an extra year or so of bullying people. Lots of lives were ruined. The country was in a political turmoil. And if Eisenhower, instead of listening to his political advisors and his political instincts, if he had listened to his brother, Milton Eisenhower, early on in his term in the White House, whispered in his ear and said, Ike, give up a tiny bit of your popularity, go out on a limb and take on this bully Mm. named McCarthy. You have lots of political capital to spend, spend some of it showing your political courage. And instead, Eisenhower didn't do that. And we know the effect, which was that Joe McCarthy lasted far too long, not just through the end of the Truman administration, but through the beginning of the Eisenhower administration. Now, you mentioned how Ike's strategy was to leave it to the fellow senators to do McCarthy in. And by my count, there were three future presidents in the Senate at the same time as McCarthy, uh, Richard Nixon at a time, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. What relationships did this trio have with McCarthy? What was Nixon's relationship, Kennedy's, Johnson's? So Nixon understood as somebody who had risen to political prominence through his own anti-communist activities, he understood two things about McCarthy. He understood how effective anti-communism was as a political issue, (laughs) and he understood that McCarthy was a bit of a wacko. (laughs) To borrow a precise uh, term, I think that that, McCarthy, Nixon was one of Eisenhower's closest advisors on how to deal with McCarthy. Mm. And I think that he actually would have preferred if if Eisenhower had been a little more courageous. The idea that anti-communist Richard Nixon saw that McCarthy was a danger to the White House and to the country is ironic. Uh, Lyndon Johnson understood how dangerous McCarthy was, but as the Democratic leader in the Senate, he also wasn't about to let his Democrats get out ahead of Republicans in terms of taking on this anti-communist icon. And so he was a little bit like Eisenhower in saying, Mm. let's wait for McCarthy to do himself in. But the least courageous of all of those three was somebody whose brother I ended up writing a biography about, (laughs) and that was Jack Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy, when the Senate... The Senate voted on yeah. censuring McCarthy, one of the most important votes 
during Jack Kennedy's career as a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, Kennedy was getting an operation on his back, and he decided he wasn't going to vote for him because he apparently was too sick. Well, that was a bunch of garbage. <laughs> was that if he knew he couldn't be in the Senate to cast his vote in person, there was a tradition in the Senate that senators voting one way would pair their vote with another senator who couldn't be there, would have voted the other way, and essentially cancel one another out. And Jack Kennedy not only didn't vote for censure, but he never told the country how he would have voted for censure. And that was for a very simple political reason, that when Jack Kennedy was running for senator, he was running against a very popular mm -hmm. Republican incumbent named Henry Cabot Lodge. And Kennedy understood that if Joe McCarthy, this flag-waving, very popular senator from Wisconsin, came in to Massachusetts and campaigned for Lodge the way Lodge hoped he would, that that could have done in Jack Kennedy. It was a very Catholic state, and Joe McCarthy yeah. was a Catholic. It was a very Irish state, and Joe McCarthy was an Irishman. And it was a very anti-communist state. And Joe McCarthy was the leader of the anti-communist movement in America. So Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the yeah, Kennedy yeah. family, and Jack's father placed a call to Joe McCarthy, having given him some very substantial campaign contributions. And he said, hmm. Joe McCarthy, I'd like you to do one thing. Stay the heck out of Massachusetts. <laughs> and McCarthy listened. He remembered what kind of contributions Joe Kennedy had given him. Yep. And he stayed the heck out of Massachusetts. <laughs> Jack Kennedy won by a very slim margin. That margin, I think, is almost entirely explained by Lodge not having the benefit of Joe McCarthy campaigning on his behalf. And the payback was that mm. Jack Kennedy not only wouldn't vote to censure McCarthy, mm. that he wouldn't say that he would have voted to censure McCarthy. And that was Jack Kennedy, who wrote a book called Profiles and Courage, right. delivered a, a very uncourageous um, political verdict on McCarthy and McCarthyism. That Joe Kennedy is such a character. I'm going to have to find someone to talk to just about Joe Kennedy at some point down the road. He's crazy. So you talked about how Joe McCarthy, he self-destructs with these army hearings. He becomes an alcoholic. He dies a few years later. In that time frame, in that between, did he ever express regret for what he had done? Uh, no, he never did. He, he, he thought that he had done something noble for the country. He also thought that the people he went after and essentially savaged in public hearings understood that this was all part of the way the political game was played and mm. he saw no need to apologize he also gave the world he gave america a protege who went on to continue to have an effect that resonates mm -hmm. in america today and that protege was a young smart lawyer from new york named roy Cohn. Yeah. And Joe McCarthy's protege, Roy Cohn, went on half a century later to become Donald Trump's tutor, yeah. Roy Cohn. Yep. And I think that via Roy Cohn and via the, the general demagogic model that he set, Joe McCarthy became a model for every bully in American politics in the last 70 years. So the last question I got for you is, is one that's kind of almost more philosophical in nature. And that's, you're a former journalist. I'm a former journalist. 
I feel like one of those hotly debated questions around journalism is when do you and don't you cover something? You know, when established, when dealing with an established politician who is a demagogue, how do you think journalists should balance keeping the public informed about what someone's saying and not giving a demagogue a platform? How are we, how's that, how are we supposed to handle that? So that is an enormously challenging issue. <laughs> I think the way we handle it is by going back and looking at the McCarthy era, at the journalist who most distinguished himself in helping bring down Joe McCarthy. And that is not the journalist that we think of in that role. There was a wonderful movie um, mm. called Good Night and Good Luck mm. that suggested to us that the guy who brought down Joe McCarthy was a crusading television reporter named Edward R. Murrow. Right. In fact, the guy brought down Joe McCarthy. The first journalist to take him on was perhaps the most well-read columnist in America mm -hmm. at the time, a columnist named Drew Pearson, who wrote scores of columns attacking Joe McCarthy in the early years when McCarthy was at the height of his power. He called him out for his lies. He made it clear that most of McCarthy's charges were untrue but that the public had never seen that because those stories were back next to the corset ads. <laughs> and for his troubles, he suffered two fates. One fate was that when McCarthy ran into him in a social club, in the coat room in a social club, he essentially beat him up. What? Whacked him around enough, and it was had a, a young U.S. senator named Richard Nixon not intervene between the two of them, he would have pummeled him to serious injury. Wow. He also took on Drew Pearson with the protection against libel offered in the U.S. Senate. He took on and attacked Drew Pearson as viciously as he had ever attacked any of his anti-communist targets. And so the lesson that McCarthy landed in the press corps was, you take me on at your own risk. Yeah. If I don't physically pummel you, right. I will verbally pummel you. The press got that. They got that Joe McCarthy was a good story, and he made a better friend than an enemy. Mm. And that is not the lesson that journalists like you and me, or old journalists like you and me, <laughs> be drawing from that. The lesson is take on a bully at an early stage because you owe it to your profession and to your country. If you've enjoyed this interview with Larry and want to learn more about Joe McCarthy, go to LarryTie.com, that's Ty spelled T-Y-E, and check out Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Uh, Larry also has a number of other books you may enjoy on his site. He hinted at one earlier, a biography on Bobby Kennedy. Thank you for your time, Larry. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APHPodcast or on threads at Kenny.Ryan27. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books to pay the host of the show, and thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, what do you do with a problem like the Suez Crisis? England, France, and Israel will disregard American warnings and invade Egypt to seize the Suez Canal, and Eisenhower will have to defuse the crisis before it can spin dangerously out of control. The last great gasp of European adventurism. 
That's coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>